welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are broadcasting today via remote access so that in light of the COVID-19 health emergency, we can maintain our social distancing and still bring you today's show. Please be patient if we, and I should say when we, experience technical glitches. We hope that everyone listening is safe and healthy and doing what they can to protect themselves and our communities during this health emergency. Wealth Matters is presented to you by Gasowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gasowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at a state dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Adam Gaslowitz, and we're talking about money messages, unpacking our emotional relationship with money. Now it's time to introduce our guests. We're pleased to have with us today David Geller, Director uh, of Behavioral Wealth Management at the Wealth Enhancement Group, and David Bachman, Head of Family Office Resources at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. And before we get into uh, our our topic, I'd like to just ask each of you to uh, briefly just uh, uh, tell the audience who you are. So David Geller, why don't you start? I am a lawyer by um, by um, training. I've been a financial advisor, wealth manager for 30 years, and I developed something called behavioral wealth management, which is the intersection of wealth management and psychology. Been working on that for about 15 years. It is a lifelong passion. We're talking about my very favorite subject, money and emotions, and I'm very happy to be here. By the way, we call that a recovering lawyer, but that's okay. And I think David, that Bobby, is true. You fall in that category too. When you, when you have two practicing, kind of three practicing lawyers with you, I try to avoid bloating. <laughs> I also am an attorney by background. I was an estate planning attorney for many years, but have been in the wealth management space for 20 years now and run a group called Family Office Resources at Morgan Stanley, which helps ultra high net worth clients resolve all the broader issues concerning their wealth beyond the investments uh, to their family dynamics, uh, philanthropy, estate planning, and the like. Okay. Uh, I'd like to start us off today with a brief statement about uh, something I think most of us on the panel can probably agree on, and that is that time and not money is our most precious resource. It's not that money doesn't matter. It's just that it isn't what matters most. And I think I think most of our clients would probably agree with that also if they took time to think about it. Yet their actions, in our experience, seem to tell a different story. In, in their daily lives, people seem to focus more on you know their financial options, what's the best financial option, and not necessarily on the option that brings them the most joy or the most meaning to their lives. So, so with that as a, as a basic foundation, why don't we start with just talking about what drives our beliefs about money. David, you call them money messages. And maybe David Gelly, you can start that conversation off. We all get these money messages growing up. We, there's hundreds of them, but you know, buy a used car, don't buy a used car for a rainy day, spend now, tomorrow, tomorrow may, may not come. And we get these messages mostly from our parents, from the communities in, in which we live and others, but predominantly our parents. We get them from their words, from their actions. And by the time we are a late, mid to late teen, we have, we have solidified our message. And in our brain, we think they are truth with a capital T. And we don't think of them much. We just make choices on them. So um, it's, it's, we, we perceive them as being the right thing to do. And so they get us in trouble when, as we get older and, and we become adults, where our childhood money messages always or often don't align with our current values. And I, I can tell a personal story that I think is a great example. 
Would you like me to do that? Sure, go ahead and do that. So one of my money messages, important to note that every child and every family gets individual money messages because they interpret what their parents are saying. One of my money messages was always save for a rainy day and it's never raining hard enough. Message was always put money in savings, never take money out of savings. No matter how bad things are, never take money out of savings. So fast forward to March of 09, I'm in the investment management business, very difficult time, bottom of, of, the, of, the, of the Great Recession. And I call my father and I say, Dad, I'm going to need to take some money out of savings to send both kids to college next year. And the first thing my dad says is, well, you know, David, things could get a lot worse. Are you sure you want to take any money out? So there you go. <laughs> 40 years, money message. I'm now feeling nervous. Education was a big value to me. I had promised my, my, my kids I would, I, 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 I would send them to college. And here I am, my childhood money message coming right back. You know, maybe I should hold on to the cash because things might be worse tomorrow. Okay, David right. Bachman, before, before David, uh, other David finishes, because I have a question for him. I have a question for you. Do you agree with him that the money messages only come from childhood? Because a lot of our clients, the money messages I'm hearing come from spouses. I, I actually agree with David that they are actually from childhood. I think what happens with spouses or in other relationships is sometimes unconsciously affected by those childhood messages. So it may seem like um, an interaction with a spouse or someone else triggers a new belief about money. But most likely, I think if you really look at it deeply, it's really just triggering a belief that's already well-founded. Um, and the spouse becomes, you know, the place, the, the next place in which that message plays out. Um, so I think, and I also, I also feel like people choose their relationships uh, in large part in order to replay uh, some of what they experienced in childhood. And uh, not to get into sort of therapy here by any means, but just that's, that's an observation. I think a lot of folks will come to uh, the, the deeper they inquire into their money messages. So, so basically, you should not talk to my spouse because I think you just criticized her inadvertently by her choices. A lot of people seem to play out those conflicts in their relationships with, with people who have different ideas about money. And, and we see this all the time with spouses who fight about money, where, where one spouse wants to save, one spouse wants to spend. Uh, and, and so when you say that people uh, sometimes pick the relationships that sort of allow them to play out these messages again, some of us pick them in ways that are, are complementary, and some of them are picked in ways that are not complementary. You know, I think what's more important than whether it's on the surface complementary or not is really whether there's consciousness about what those messages are. I think David Geller was speaking well to that before. I think that, you know, if you do the work to understand what those messages are and how sometimes they can become quite exaggerated, then I think whether you bring, when you bring those beliefs into a relationship, whether a, a marital relationship or otherwise, you can at least have a little bit of openness about the possibility that you have an exaggerated uh, sort of experience. Uh, David's example uh, in, in 2009 is a, great, is a great one, you know, where something can uh, still be a belief, though it's long outlived its usefulness. So I don't know that it's really as critical uh, to focus on whether the person you're in relationship with has similar beliefs or not, it's more important to just be conscious and deliberate in the way you talk about it. And that's where the real challenge often lies in just poor communication because there's 
often some guilt or shame or discomfort even about what our money messages are. And David Geller, go back to that because you said that it comes from actions or words of parents, but both of you have said, you know, kind of the first step is to be aware of them. But the truth is, I'm not sure we are aware of them. And so my question really is, how do you identify where where you are aware of them, particularly when parents of my generation, frankly, probably never talked. It'd be more their actions than anything they said. So how do our listeners identify in, in their front consciousness what their money message is? So you're exactly right, Craig. It is most people are not aware of their money messages. They got them when they were these teens and they think they are true. Um, you know, we, 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 we know that's the case because when we'll identify a money message for a, for, for a client and we'll say, how has this message helped you? They'll, they'll, they'll be very quick to say, it's helped me in these seven days. And then when we say, how has this message harmed you? And it's always helped and harmed, they'll be completely lost. I have no idea how it's harmed because they believe so strongly the message is true. So how do you identify it? I think that there's a number of ways to identify it. There's a wonderful thing called the Klontz Money Script, K-L-O-N-T-Z, developed by Brad, and it's a father-son team, but it is a it is an online thing you can find. We, we, we certainly have it. We can certainly send it to people, and it literally helps you figure out what are your most common money messages. It's a 31-page, 31-question, not page, 31-question. Um, we have something else called the Money Health Inventory um, that is also really designed to help people figure out money money messages. But I think the first step is for people to work with advisors, professionals, therapists, somebody who understands that money messages exist, who understands that 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 they come from childhood, who is actually listening for them, because without often outside help, we just, we don't think of them as a money message. We think of them as being true. Along, the, along those lines, let me suggest one other problem with, with convincing people that they have a money message they're carrying. And that is people will grow up in the same household with a number of siblings and, and they will know as a matter of fact, that they have a completely different uh, idea about money than their siblings. You know, one, one of them is a saver and the other is a spendthrift. One of them is, is, you know, becomes financially independent when they grow up and, and another never learns to survive on their own. And so a lot of people are probably thinking that, how could I have grown up in the same household with somebody else, received the same input and yet come away with a completely different money message? <laughs> Such a good question. And, and the answer is that we watch our parents do things, we observe their behavior, we listen to their words, but we put our own interpretation on those words. So somebody might go grow up in, in a household where money's constantly tight, right? And child I, A might, might say, my parents are really bright because they live every day for the moment. They don't worry about money. The real thing I'm learning from my parents is to enjoy life now. And, and um, child B, the second child might, might, might say, we're under constant financial stress. This is craziness. I'm going to save a lot of money. They're observing the same behaviors. They're in many ways listening to the same words, but they're then putting their own interpretation, creating their own money message. David yeah. Bachman, you, you're looking at families and I assume sometimes seeing siblings. Are the siblings able to talk to each other and recognize that they have different messages? Generally, if the parents have set a good example by speaking with some transparency about money 
between themselves and to the children, it's easier. Uh, when you see siblings uh, more challenged, it's typically because that wasn't modeled uh, at the parents' generation. Um, to, to If I could just elaborate on the, the prior question, it does feel to me like it's a combination of uh, nature and nurture. I do think uh, the reason that David's 100% right that two different children can, can view the same message from their parents through a different lens is that we do come in with some predispositions. I do think that there's some personality uh, traits that are, are sort of, that we're born with. And, and so a good way when you're doing the inventory that, that David mentioned to sort of get to that is just ask, what does money symbolize to me? Um, and people will use words like power or freedom or opportunity or security or fun uh, and, and be revealing. If one child has a predisposition to look at money as security, which we all know is an illusion, but a very popular uh, belief, um, and another child has the, 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 um, the predisposition to look at it as opportunity, it doesn't matter what the parents say. The one who sees it as, from the lens of security is going to hear it differently than the one who sees it through the lens of opportunity. So I think that's, that's actually a very important, I would say, first question. Uh, what does money symbolize to you? Um, and one of the ways that I think you can get to that is to start asking, you know, what are some of my beliefs around money? I actually, I love the idea of the questionnaires. I'm going to, I'm going to go look at the ones that David mentioned. I also think you, you can do a lot just by yourself, just really just literally writing them down. Um, you know, and, and it's, there's never enough money. There's, you know, rich people are this or rich people are that, or poor people are this, or poor people are that, um, you know, what looking at, you know, what, what do you have as an inherent belief and where did it come from? And then that's how you can sort of get to what does money represent to me? What does it symbolize? And then you can start asking the really hard questions, which, you know, what has money done to my relationships? Has it facilitated good relationships? Has it been a challenge in my relationships uh, and the like? So I think, I think that's a really important point. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter what technique you use to get there. The point is that you are very honest. And, and uh, I think, I think somebody mentioned earlier, the idea of having somebody you can speak to, about money, uh, I'll call it a money confessor, uh, just for a second, you know, somebody who you've been completely transparent about, whether it's a friend or a spouse, ideally your advisor, um, and, and as well as, as others. And, and what, if you're not transparent with somebody, why not? What are you ashamed of? Are there, are there failures that you feel like you've had concerning money that are holding you back? Are you concerned about conflict with a spouse or, or a child or a parent? Um, but who is it, you know, who is it that you're really the most comfortable discussing these issues with? And if, if nobody, why not? And if, if you do gravitate towards one person rather than another, why? And even just literally journaling about it, just like literally writing down, what are my beliefs? Why, where do they come from? Uh, and the like, if you start with some of these really challenging questions, you can get to the place where money becomes something that you use, uh, for, a better life rather than something that owns you and uses you. I, I want to follow up. I think, I think what David Bachman just mm -hmm. said is exactly correct. And I want to add, I think it's exactly correct on being candid about what does money mean to you or symbolize for you. 
for a lot of people, we use money as a way to keep score, but we're often reluctant to admit that to ourselves. When I, when I ask that question, that's the one that's least likely to come out, but it's very powerful. Um, it's a very powerful motivator, and I think we need to be honest, on, honest about it. The second thing I want to say is that I do think the journaling and the money confessor and the financial advisor is all important. I think this is about incremental progress. And I think at some point you want to identify your core money messages growing up. I, I, I earlier gave you one of mine and you want to reframe them in a way that more accurately reflects your values. And then, so in my case, the message was always save for a rainy day, it's never raining hard enough. My new message is always save for a rainy day. And when it's raining, use the money, it's your umbrella, right? So that's a different message. And then, and then you have to, and this is why a money confessor or a financial advisor who is knowledgeable about this routine, financial advisory team that's knowledgeable, is that when you then face your next choice point, your next important choice, that original money message will pull you towards a certain decision. And if you can, at, at, at the choice point, think about the money message that, think about your new money message, the way you've reframed the new money message, then all of a sudden you're now starting to align your choices with your values and right. you'll end up being better off. But this is not tonight, go home, journal for 40 minutes, you got this, this fix. This is a incremental step day by day, month by month, year by year, Camden. Uh, you're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we see opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. And today we're discussing uh, money messages and trying to unpack the uh, relationships that people have with money. We're talking today with David Geller, Director of Behavioral Wealth Management at the Wealth Enhancement Group, and David Bachman, Head of Family Office Resources at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Let me, let me just follow up on uh, what you were talking about, David, because even recognizing that you have certain uh, money money issues that are um, adversely impacting your life, that, that, you're, that you should be spending for things that, that you know would make your life better, you know you can afford it, and yet you still don't do that. Um, so just recognizing that that you have these issues isn't sufficient in and of itself to, to change that. And I'll give you just a real quick example, which you're aware of, which is um, in one of my money messages, you know, I, was, I was a hoarder, you know, I, I was a, you know, a saver, and um, and I was taught that you don't buy new cars, you know, that it's a waste of money to buy a new car. And so I bought used cars my whole life. And I, I didn't buy my first new car until I was 57 years old. You're welcome, Madison, because I made you do it. <laughs> you both made me do it. But um, but the, but the thing is, this was it was decades before that that I knew I could afford a new car. And I watched secretaries at my office buy new cars and still thought, wow, they can afford new cars. They're not behaving well. They're not behaving properly from a financial standpoint. And uh, and so I never did. So how do you get past the, I recognize these are issues. I want to change, but the message just keeps coming back. It is so ingrained. So I think you need to identify the restraining forces that are holding you back from making those choices. So, you know, yours might've been, I'm going to be poor. Yours might've been, I'm being a bad steward. Yours might've been, there could have been 10, 20, 30 of them. I, 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 I don't know what, what they all are, but you identify the restraining forces that are holding you back from the choice you want and you work to weaken the easiest one to get rid of. 
You don't start with the most impactful. You don't start with the hardest. You start with the weakest. Give an example. Give an example. So, you know, so maybe um, we'll take the car thing and maybe, you know, one of Adam's thing was um, cars are a bad deal because they rapidly depreciate the moment you drive them off of the, um, of the lot. And, and, and Adam also thinks, you know, I also hold on to cars a long time. So when he thinks about his restraining forces, he may think to himself, I don't need to worry about depreciation off the lot. Because at the end of the day, I'm holding the car for 15 years. Or, or, or he may say, one of the restraining forces is, I'm afraid I won't have enough cash. This is probably a, a better example. And he might say, I've got lots of, lots of money set aside. So I can give up the fear about not having cash. Because even if I buy the car for cash, I still have lots of extra. It's, it's his internal judgment as to which one's the easiest to overcome. So those are two examples, but ultimately, what do you say when you look at these, say, yeah, I can give up this restraining force because I I have this. And then you work them through from easiest to hardest. David Bachman, you had mentioned, you know, that the best thing to do is to find a confessor. And I'm hearing the examples that David Geller gave, and I'm hearing the examples that Adam gave. Both of them started with a recognition from a confessor that told them, here's your problem, not your problem, but here is your message and here's how you can address it. I find that many of our clients don't ever have a confessor. They may have a financial planner, but they never tell their financial planner everything. They use a little bit here and a little bit there. They met them at church. They don't feel, but they never actually find one person who they can confess to. Tell our listeners how you go about finding that person, because that seems to be the first step. Well, I do think that it's important to start by yourself. I mean, I think that this process of doing an inventory of your beliefs on your own is important. And just identify what are the questions that I'm most uncomfortable looking at. So a lot of times it's spending. A lot of times people, regardless of their means, are very uncomfortable with the amount that they spend. And it causes a lot of shame. Um, Or it could be uh, failures that they've had in the past. Or perceived uh, they consider a failure. I'm sorry, perceived Perceived failures, exactly. They're carrying them around. And the idea is to say, okay, who is it that I'm, you would literally write them down. Here are the things I'm uncomfortable discussing. Oftentimes, for example, parents are just uncomfortable talking about money with their children. Why? Why is that? What is it from their their childhood that they're still uncomfortable with? And so then, then identify, you know, who do I trust to tell the, the first one of these, again, to, to the method that David described before, the easiest one, the one that I've been uncomfortable with, but I could at least tell to this person and then see what happens. 99 times out of 100, it's going to produce a sense of relief. It's going to produce a sense that, you know what, this wasn't a deep, dark secret after all. The person who I mentioned it to actually shares a very similar concern or issue um, and then just work incrementally uh, through them and and just, you know, test and experiment with uh, with each issue. Oftentimes, it's not the most obvious person. So if there's tension in a relationship, whether it's with a friend or a spouse or a business associate, you know, even though you have a lot of financial interactions with people like that, they may not be the best person to talk about these issues with because they may be triggering some of the issues that you have yourself. And so it may be better to start with somebody who you don't have much of a financial relationship with. 
um, and, uh, and then work through that. I also think it's really important uh, to have as strong a relationship with your financial advisor as possible. Uh, that has to be a place that you're comfortable uh, going. And financial advisors are often you know, much more comfortable talking about these things and ready to talk about these things than, than you yourself will be. Uh, and so if you if you trust a little bit, test a little bit, you'll find that they have so many um, other uh, clients who've gone through similar experiences and have similar beliefs that they really can be uh, a very important part of the solution. And I think a lot of times people feel like they'll they'll say a little bit, but not everything. Um, and yet what, what I have certainly experienced and what we certainly experience as a firm is the the, the folks who are most comfortable uh, and open about these issues uh, early on are the ones who actually really equip the advisor uh, to serve them the best. Uh, and, and so uh, I, that may not be the first person you go to, but it should be at some point uh, in the process, somebody that you're comfortable with. So I guess the, the, the shorter way of saying all of this is, is just experiment a little bit, test a little bit. You will generally find that uh, the the anxiety or shame or or, or uh, guilt uh, that you have about money is not quite as uh, as ugly when you put it on the outside. I feel on the inside. Do you think that advisors need to be more proactive in in drawing that information out? Because most people <laughs> don't volunteer that information. I mean, it's just we just don't talk about it in society. Even even people who whose money message is is, is to use money to keep score aren't being uh, open about their own uh, assets. And so their scorekeeping is really kind of futile. How active do you guys get with your clients? It depends on the advisor, but I really do think that uh, the advisors who are willing to get proactive uh, often serve their clients the best, but it has to be, you know, it has to be a case by case uh, analysis, right? Some clients are clearly more comfortable with these things early on. Uh, than others. And I, and I think it's just a, a matter of getting to know the client and the family and thinking through when is the best time. But the one thing I'll say to clients and advisors both is you generally err on the side of communicating less and late rather than more and too early. So if you're, if you're thinking that it might be time to talk to your children, for example, about money, chances are it already is. If you're thinking you might want to say a little bit more either to your advisor or a spouse or a child. Chances are that time has already uh, come. And so it's a, it's a general observation that we are reluctant and overcoming that reluctance will generally pay, uh, pay uh, dividends. Yeah, I, I would say I'd like to add, I mean, again, I, I would agree with David and I, I like the Frank Fesser um, I think that for many people, they need the advisor to help initiate the conversation. Some people are ready and some people aren't, but I don't think they're thinking about it. I think that you ideally want someone, an advisory team who is skilled at this. We've added three behavioral wealth specialists, people with master's degrees on either counseling or social work to help facilitate these conversations because they can be very vulnerable. And I think having a skilled person there to do it's really, really good. I think financial advisors, Many of them are very empathetic, but can feel over, over, overwhelmed. Um, and, and I think that when you're looking for the person to talk to, I think what you're looking for is someone who you think will listen to you without compa with compassion and without judgment. That's really the key, because if we feel they're judging us, we're not going to talk to them. 
and we self-discover as we self-disclose, and this is a self-discovery process, we got to have a non-judgmental list. So let's switch the question back. So I am finding in today's world, which is very different than our parents' world, that that clients are, are more willing to change financial advisors multiple times, that they don't stay necessarily with the family. And so that puts a lot of pressure on the financial advisor, a fear of losing the business. I'm not sure that existed 15 or 20 years ago. And so I want to ask the question from the client's perspective. So because a, an advisor may be hesitant to raise it too early for fear of what you just said, making it appear that they're being judgmental and scaring the client off at the very time they're trying to attract the client and get them to love them. So how does the client talk to the advisor to choose an advisor that he or she thinks might be able to help them, but they're just getting to know that advisor. So what, what should they be asking or looking for or asking of the advisor and the selection process? I think advisors who have this as part of their practice, who think about this on a regular basis, they're gonna bring it up. It's gonna be part of what, it's gonna be part of their value proposition. They're, they're not gonna, when you go and talk and interview them, it's not gonna be just about Here's, you know, here's how, how we manage money and here's asset allocation and here's the efficient frontier and here's how we do tax loss selling. They're going to add this humanistic psychological element as part of their value offer. Um, and I think that if you are talking to an advisor and it's not coming up at all as part of their value proposition, and this is important to you in an advisor, it doesn't have to be, but if it's important to you, I think you probably need a different advisor. I would also say, I, I agree with that and would also say that the more you bring into that conversation, the more you'll discover that the advisor usually does want to have this conversation and is more than capable of doing so, whether they're, uh, whether they bring it up first or not. So it's, it's, I, I do think you want to be on the lookout for somebody who asks those questions, but I think if you bring that into the conversation, you're going to really advance the cause quite a bit yourself. How do you, how do you, um, you mentioned, uh, uh, the children and the next generation, how, how as a parent, do you, um, do you keep from passing on the messages that you recognize are, are, um, uh, not helping you in your life? How do you, how do you pass on better messages while you still display the messages that you're carrying with you from childhood? Do as I say, don't do as I do. How do you do that? Well, 99% of it is just awareness. I mean, I think if you are aware of your own messages, if you are, uh, if you have an understanding and some acceptance, some self-acceptance, which is a big part of this process to not necessarily say, here's this terrible belief that I have to change, but here's a belief I have and how do I adapt my life around it so that I can, you know, so that it can not uh, damage my, my relationships or, or my own feelings about money. I think if you have aware about that and are comfortable and accepting and it doesn't really even matter uh, how you communicate verbally uh, to anybody, children or otherwise. It really will just come out in, in, your, in your attitude and your energy around money. I think people carry a lot of energy around money and most of it is unspoken. And literally just understanding what that energy is is a great way uh, to bring down the pressure on everybody around you who is uh, otherwise sensing that energy. I would add to that, that um, in many cases with our children, some of our money messages did not um, 
were not helpful for them, did not enhance the relationship. There was some damage done along, along the way. And I think as an adult, if you're able and willing to be vulnerable with your kids and say, I know I, I did this while you were growing up, I certainly regret it. My sense is that this wasn't great for you or that I harmed you in some way or that this was difficult for you. And I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to hear you tell me what you thought and what you observed and what went on and, and give them an opportunity to talk. And, and then just to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I love you. And I, it, it certainly wasn't intentional and, you know, but I'm sorry. And I think that you'll do better with um, your kids. So David, yeah, that's, a, David Bachman, that's important just in terms of, if I could just add to that, just admitting that money's hard. Uh, you know, right. in, in any relevant, just admitting this is something that's not as easy as uh, as I wish it was, and and here's here's the ramification of that. Sorry, Adam. That, that's okay. So, so David Geller, you had talked about trying to align your money messages with your values, and David Bachman, you had mentioned that as you when you talked about what you do, you had said part of it is seeing how philanthropy fits in. So, I do want to ask you a question about philanthropy. I find it's very hard to say, what do I like? You know, what, 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 what is my value? You kind of get stumped. But I find philanthropy as to what you choose to use your money or your time, what you care about, that's an easier way to talk about or identify your values. Do you see that? And if so, how do you use philanthropy to help your clients identify their values? Yeah, I, I think philanthropy is often an extremely powerful place to start these kinds of conversations, particularly when you're involving family members. And women have a good deal of resources uh, dedicated to that, uh, to that topic. And so I would say if you understand what the different philanthropic uh, vision, mission, attitudes, energy of the different family members are, and can have a conversation about how to reconcile those into a common vision, if that's appropriate. Uh, that's a very powerful uh, place to, to bring up messages because what we give to, what we care about, often reflects a lot of these beliefs uh, that we've been talking about today. It's a great and sometimes safer way for those topics to be raised. So uh, philanthropy, to the extent the family is committed to that, uh, is a great uh, a great environment in which to bring up all of these beliefs and, when possible, to reconcile them. And so, uh, a lot of times, um, you see you see the conversation around philanthropy lead to deeper conversations uh, about the family's overall uh, mission uh, and vision as it relates to their wealth. I mean, again, just to kind of add on philanthropy, we know that making a difference in other people's lives and helping other people is a big is a big factor that drives meaningful and joyful lives. We know that people who do it are happier, that it's that it's a very positive thing. And so when you take the philanthropy discussion and you just start with our values and who we want to support, but you get to how does it impact us as 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 a family unit and us individually you start gaining things that really matter, which often then leads you to money discussions about where do we allocate our time and money in ways that will not just help others, but will also help us. And what is the real value that we're trying to get? It's, it's an incredibly good launching off point. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, too, that the, the philanthropic question is also a really good place to look at your own beliefs. So one of the one of the things you can look at is, you know, what do I give to freely? 
And what do I give to reluctantly? What do I give to out of pure joy? What do I give to out of peer pressure or family, you know, sort of legacy and history, like we're supposed to do this. And so we do it. Um, what, uh, where, what, what's the difference between the feeling I have when I give freely versus when I give for some other motive, if I'm giving for recognition, which is okay too, right? If I'm giving uh, sometimes with a feeling that it's going to somehow produce a reciprocal benefit to me of some kind, that's all right also. But just understand like, why am I doing that? Um, and what's the, what's the motivation? And what's the different experience of that truly joyful for fun and for free, so to speak, uh, giving uh, that I do? And, and what does that say about my other money issues uh, beyond philanthropy? And then for many people, particularly PPP with large amounts of wealth, they're, they're giving less than they think they, quote, should, right? Than they should. And there's a lot of shame around that and a lot of guilt around that. They'll often attack. They'll, they'll be self-attacks. I should be doing more. I'm not generous enough. I'm this, I'm that. Self-attack is never a winning strategy in the history of mankind, never a winning strategy. But that's a wonderful opportunity to explore what's holding you back from giving. What are you afraid of? What's going on? It's a great way to get into the core of it. And again, you always want to be able to do this with, with, with a person that you can speak to about it who is going to be non-judgmental and going to be compassionate. So we're, we're nearing the end of our show. I do kind of want to tell us one thing that worked for one of my clients that I heard actually at a charitable giving group, which is if you could just give 5% at, your, at the end of your life to somebody or some entity, and, and it's not a dollar amount, it could be $50 or $50 million, who would it be? But it's only 5%, who would it be? And do you want to start thinking about it? Because you're not necessarily giving it, but if you start thinking about it, put that in the will. 5% of what I'm left with, or 3% of what I'm left with. And and maybe that's a touch-off point. Um, I only tell you that because my wife and I did that, and it was fascinating to see both how we were aligned and not. But we did identify our top three, if we could only give to three people, three entities, who would it be and why? And we actually did it with our kids too. So it was kind of fun. That being said, we are now towards the end of our show. So as I told you at the beginning, if our listeners want to contact you and learn a lot more and, and take the plots test or to talk about how families get together, David Geller, how do they talk to you? How do they reach you? They can call me at 770-295-5601. They can reach out to me on LinkedIn. They can email me at dgeller at wealthenhancement.com, or they can just go to the wealthenhancement.com website. I'm part of the Wealth Enhancement Group, and they can look up my name, and they can contact me. David Bachman, how do they contact you? Uh, Morganstanley.com. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be found there. And my uh, or david.bachman at morganstanley.com. I want to thank everyone for listening today to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitch Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitchfrankel.com and remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were David Geller, who's a director with Behavioral Wealth Management at the Wealth Enhancement Group, and David Bachman, who's the head of the Family Office Resources at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here 
at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X.